Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, welcome to a new episode of the Indian Ocean World Podcast. My name is Archishman Chaudhuri, and my guest today is Dr. Miko Toivonen, a postdoctoral researcher at Ludwig Maximilian University, Munich. Dr. Miko Toivonen uh, studied history at Leiden University in the Netherlands, where he researched and wrote for his research master's thesis, which was published as a monograph by the Leiden University Press entitled The Travels of Peter Albert Bick, Writings from the Dutch Colonial World of the Early 19th Century. Dr. Miko Toivonen developed uh, his research into 19th century Dutch and British colonial travelogues as his doctoral research at the European University of Institute Florence, where he defended his doctoral thesis entitled Colonial Tours, the Leisure and Anxiety of Empire in Travel Writing from Java, Ceylon, and the Straits Settlements, 1840 to 1875. At present, Dr. Miko Toivonen is working on a postdoctoral project called Staging a Colonial Capital, the Construction of Public Space in Singapore and Batavia through Spectacle and Ceremony, 1845 to 1870. Today, we will hear Dr. Miko Toivonen talk about his research on colonial tourism and its relationship with environment in Ceylon, in Java, and in the Strait Settlements in the 19th century. He will discuss with us how British and Dutch colonialism in the 19th century, 19th century interacted with the environment. Without much further ado, Dr. Miko Toivonen, welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. Sorry, uh, I'm very happy to be here. I mean, I would just like to start with a very basic question. What triggered your interest in studying colonial travelogues? And from the perspective of understanding these travelogues as uh, um, sources that speak of human environment interaction, is there any way that you can tell us how these travelogues uh, sort of describe or explore colonial developments over a long term in the 19th century? Um, yeah, so thank you very much for that question. Um, so like you already mentioned in your introduction, uh, which was very uh, thorough, um, so I already started working on colonial travel uh, during my master's studies in Leiden in the Netherlands. So this has been going on for quite a long time. And I think there's, there is something about travelogues, about travel writing as a source um, that is just kind of inherently fascinating because it's um, it's a kind of a very quick way to get a kind of an overview of everything that's happening um, in a region or in the empire. So of course we're talking here strictly from an imperial uh, perspective, but to get a kind of a good overview of all the sort of topics of interest uh, in imperial discourse uh, in a period, in my case, the sort of the middle of the 19th century. So there is that kind of um, fascination of just kind of seeing all these different topics and how different top <laughs> Sorry, of just um, there is this fascination of just seeing all of these different topics and how people uh, think about them um, at the time. Now, in terms of um, the environment aspect specifically, um, of course, the environment is the natural environment is extremely important for 
all kinds of travel, but especially for the sort of tourism that I'm interested in, kind of early colonial tourism. And many of the sites that people uh, visit uh, or see are kind of points of interest because of the natural environment. So, I mean, firstly, in the kind of most obvious, clear sense, um, the natural environment itself is a destination. So people go to see volcanoes on Java, people go to see waterfalls, uh, people go hiking uh, in the mountains in various places. So the nature, nature itself is a destination, as it is in Europe at this time as well. But then secondly, uh, colonial travelogues give you a very clear uh, kind of idea of how colonization transforms the natural environment. Um, so this is the 19th, the 19th century is a period of colonial expansion and colonial uh, consolidation in much of the region of Southeast Asia and Ceylon that I'm interested in. You can see new plantations forming, how they kind of take space from, um, <laughs> I was going to say wild nature, but obviously that's, that's quite a loaded, loaded term, but sort of nature that hasn't been colonized in that sense. They become productive uh, agricultural land. Um, so that's one thing you see. And then thirdly, um, I think an interesting thing with plantations in particular is that um, they become sort of tourist sites and destinations in, the, in their own right. So we don't really think of, of, kind of farms as, as, uh, as tourist sites in the present day. Actually, maybe we do nowadays with kind of agritourismo in Italy and so on. But already in the 19th century, um, people were very interested in seeing uh, how new plantations work, what sort of machinery they use, uh, what's the, kind of the organization of labor. So there's very much this in 19th century tourism in Europe also, but also in the colonial realm, uh, there is very much this interest, this fascination with kind of new technology and how it's shaping the nature. So that becomes a part of the tourist discourse. So I mean, that's just kind of a slightly rambly answer, but I hope uh, maybe that kind of gets us to uh, uh, a start with this uh, with this topic. Well, it does indeed. Thank you. Um, as I've been reading some of your research, I came across this point you make, uh, drawing upon from Richard Grove's work on environmentalism in the British Empire. And you sort of argue that the reason why uh, the British and also the Dutch colonial uh, tours were so interested in the Eastern Islands in the Indian Ocean is they feel a disconnect uh, between the industrialized societies back home in Great Britain or in the Netherlands and the sort of uh, rustic, untampered uh, nature that they encounter in places like Ceylon, Java, and also, uh, I guess, uh, further in the Indonesian archipelago. I felt this is a you know, strong note of emotional disconnect that the early colonial uh, tourists encountered. but. It's also um, a product of colonial redesigning, uh, which you argue um, led to the construction of botanical gardens. For instance, the Bautenzorg in Java or the gardens of Peradenia in Ceylon and the gardens in, in Singapore. But as much as I understand that there is a strong tendency on the part of uh, emperors or conquerors to redesign landscapes according to their whims or what they or what they expect or what they would like it to be. For instance, I'm reminded of the Mughal Emperor Babur, 
who after moving to uh, South Asia from Central Asia in the 16th century, he redesigns the landscape according to the uh, Charbagh gardens, which, were, which are now so typical of the Mughal style. And this is a style that he borrows from Central Asia. And then you point out that um, the colonial botanical gardens also draw upon inspirations from Europe and they are, they are by no means sort of this you know paradise like Edens which they are described of course in the in the travelogues but I felt that in this case environment it becomes a performance by the colonial authorities it's not just redesigning it's a site of performance and even uh, the travelogues that uh, make or speak of the tours to these botanical gardens sort of uh, sort of also become a performance of living up to the colonial realities. What is your take on that? Um, I think that's, a, that's an absolutely uh, fascinating point. And I, th I think I really like how you raise the example of kind of um, other rulers, rulers before European colonization using gardens as a kind of a site of imperial prestige uh, in a way and I think that's, this is something that is quite often maybe forgotten when, it, when we talk about botanical gardens in, in the 19th century which we see as kind of sites of, of uh, 19th century science European kind of uh, scientific worldviews um, but there is this much kind of longer history of gardens and, and basically kind of as a symbol of power which the botanical gardens are also drawing upon uh, very much um, I just kind of like to go back a little bit. You mentioned Richard Grove's work on how kind of tropical islands came to be seen in the European imagination, in the imperial imagination, as this kind of paradise-like uh, kind of gardens of Eden. And this is very much a discourse that you see in 19th century travelogues. Um, Ceylon is, is frequently uh, referred to as the Eden of the Eastern Wave, uh, but similar language also um, is used on for Java, for Singapore, and other places in the region. Uh, what I find really interesting about this this metaphor of the Garden of Eden is that it has a kind of a double double meaning. It at the same time it implies uh, this kind of untouched wilderness, which you also mentioned, but at the same time it is a garden, so it also implies um, cultivated land, productive land, agricultural land. And I think this kind of double meaning is very this kind of elision of meanings is 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 used um, quite consciously by um, travel writers in the 19th century, uh, where they often talk about the environment of these islands uh, as being paradise-like and untouched. But then when they actually describe it, they're not actually describing untouched land. They are precisely describing these botanical gardens. They are uh, describing plantations, which are productive agricultural land. So there is this kind of transformation of the meaning of what a Garden of Eden is. Uh, as you can kind of use that metaphor to make precisely this case, this <clears throat> you can use that metaphor to make precisely this case of um, making the environment work for the empire, leaving a kind of an imperial stamp on the environment as it becomes productive. So I think I absolutely take your point that botanical gardens in particular, they are a performance, uh, a kind of a performance of uh, the empire's relationship with the environment. Um, there is definitely a kind of a element of competitive um, 
botany, if you will, a competitive garden building in the 19th century where Dutch travelers would go to Singapore and they'd say, well, this is a nice garden, but actually we have a better one in Bautensor. Um, especially kind of earlier on in the period that I'm interested in, British, British travelers would go to Bautensor and they would say, oh, actually, this is really nice. Maybe we should have something like this. Um, so there is this kind of comparative um, uh, kind of this competition, really, between these different imperial powers, these two major imperial powers. Um, what I would also like to point out about botanical gardens is that they are usually, there's a lot of very good work on botanical gardens in the 19th century, but they are quite often understood primarily as sites of science, like I said, uh, just there. In my work, what comes uh, across in these travelogues most, most kind of forcefully is that they are also sites of leisure and sites of entertainment um, for travelers, but also for the kind of the elite lo uh, local colonial society. So people go there for walks, just kind of for, for the pleasure of a walk, but they also go there for concerts. Uh, there's a lot of social life, especially in Singapore, you have kind of events organized in these gardens. So they are kind of um, central locations for social life and leisure as well. And I think this is something to remember. Uh, they become a kind of a easier replacement for the supposedly uh, untouched wilderness of the colonies because they are a controlled environment. Um, there's protection from kind of excessive heat or from insects or for disease, from diseases, which are you know, things that the colonial environment, the tropical environment is, is frequently associated with. In the botanical garden, you can, in a way, experience the good sides of the tropical environment without the bad sides. That's, that's the idea that um, is uh, kind of promoted in this sort of travel writing that I'm interested in. <clears throat> See, so these gardens also become, they become a kind of a safe location for social life, uh, also partly because uh, quite often they are, they have exclusive access. You have to be, sometimes you have to be white to get in, sometimes you have to be of an elite status to get in. Uh, it depends in different places and different times, but it's always um, restricted who gets to actually be a part of this social life in the gardens. And they are made to be a kind of a, a showpiece of imperial culture, partly imported from Europe. What always amuses me is this fact that I found in a, in a document on the Peridenia Gardens in Ceylon, where they imported park benches all the way from Britain, just to kind of create the right sort of uh, environment, the right sort of look for a garden, which clearly you could have just built there. <laughs> But this, it was kind of an important part of the look. So, you know, this sort of idea of, of botanical garden as a kind of a representation of trop tropical environment that can be used as a stage for a certain kind of social life. That's, that's what I'm interested in. Thank you. I'm just going to stay on a bit longer with the botanical gardens. And might I just ask you another question on this? You've spoken of... Uh, the trans-imperial networks of these travelers, particularly the Dutch and the British, that there is always, you know, some sort of correspondence. Uh, for example, you pointed out the case of the Dutch botanist, W.H. de Vries, who went to Ceylon to understand coffee cultivation and sort of to figure out if there were ways to replicate that in, uh, in the Dutch East Indies. But what intrigued me was, do these uh, travelers who are you know, connected to each other in sort of a trans-imperial network 
also speak to each other uh, about the environment through their travelogues. I mean, is there a question of emulation involved? I mean, were there any trend-setting works that describe the flora and fauna as a colonial travelogue, which was sort, you know, sort of uh, emulated by later uh, travelers? And if that was the case, in sort of this process of uh, emulating descriptions or, you know, sort of uh, painting the same uh, pic painting picture about the same place, but uh, from a different time scale. Does this process allow us in any measure uh, a glimpse into changing colonial realities in the 19th century? Yeah, so I'll just, it's a very good question and kind of very big question. I'll just start with the, the transcolonial aspect there, which I think is very important. So a big part of my research, kind of one of the major arguments that I make in my, in my research is that, um, that there was this rather developed circuit of transcolonial travel, uh, leisure travel in particular, around the middle of the 19th century that encompassed Southeast Asia and kind of the, the region around the Bay of Bengal. So the point that I'm making is that this kind of early colonial tourism was not national or uh, restricted to a single colony, but it was transcolonial in nature. Now, you mentioned um, transcolonial scientific collaborations, transimperial scientific networks, and this is, this is, of course, a, a topic that quite a lot of work has been done and is currently being done by people who are kind of much better placed to talk about it than, than I am, because my interest is primarily in tourism. But if we kind of shift a little bit away from the scientific aspect into the touristic aspect, the leisure aspect of, of travel. Um, so what I'm interested in is there are British colonial officials in India, for example, stationed in India, who then travel to the Dutch East Indies. Or there's a lot of Dutch colonial officials who, when they are going back to Europe, um, are either at the end of their careers or for a stay. Um, they travel through Singapore, maybe Ceylon, maybe India. They see these places as they travel through the region. So there is this kind of creation of a, of a regional colonial culture of travel. And indeed, like, precisely like you said, that leads to the emergence of a kind of a regional frame of reference. Um, also for how, we, how people think about um, the natural environment. So, um, a big part of this kind of travel is uh, what is called invalid travel. So um, people who go to places with supposedly more healthy climates to convalesce um, for a period. Um, and there's a lot of works published uh, about this sort of travel that give you advice on where you should go. So for example, uh, there are these, so for example, um, you see a kind of an emergence of a hierarchy of places with the best climates for a European colonial official. So for example, if you lived in Bengal and you wanted to go somewhere healthier, then you could go to Singapore, which is better. But if you have more money, you should go to Java because that's even better. And on Java, you can go to Bautensorg, which is obviously the main kind of travel destination on the island. But actually, if you have a bit more money and are a bit more adventurous, you should go to Bandung, which is not that far away, but has much, much uh, better climate for a European constitution. So you can see this kind of very um, detailed hierarchy of places of kind of which destinations are better than others, what kind of climates are better than others. 
and it's being created on a regional scale. So there is this idea that if you are a colonial official in Bengal, you get to choose between all of these different places, maybe depending on your, your income and your kind of personal status. Um, so that's kind of um, one of the major uh, findings in a way of, of, of this research in, in, in my in my view, this kind of emergence of a, of a transcolonial frame of reference for travel. Now, you asked about if there are sort of trend-setting works or kind of groundbreaking works that sort of introduce a new travel destination for the first time, and that then becomes replicated as a mode of as a model of travel. Uh, and Indeed, this is very much the case. And indeed, this happens um, kind of very quickly. So, for example, for Ceylon, which is kind of the first uh, of the places that I'm interested in to become a major travel destination, um, around sort of the late 1830s, around 1840, the first really sort of popular leisurely travel accounts from Ceylon start to be published um, in Britain. And there you have, for example, um, Augustus de Butts uh, writes one of these books in 1841, and he, in his, in his kind of introduction to the book, says, "So much has been written about uh, British India as a travel uh, as, a, as a travel destination." But he says, and I quote, "Strange to say, the beautiful and romantic island of Ceylon has remained in comparative obscurity." So he's very much kind of making a claim on Ceylon as something that hasn't been described before, and he's going to do this now for the first time. Not for the first time, obviously, in reality, but it's kind of telling. And just 24 years later, in 1875, John Thompson writes about um, Britain's Eastern possessions. Uh, he writes completely differently. He says, when he mentions Ceylon, he says, I need not pause to detail my experiences over one of the beaten tracks of modern tourists. So in those kind of 24 years, Ceylon has become one of the kind of been there, done that tourist places that isn't really interesting anymore. So the process is very quick when something becomes first described in a touristic sense and then becomes kind of over described to the point that it's no longer interesting for readers. Um, another example that I have is um, Charles Kindler, who was uh, uh, a British official based in Bengal. He wrote about uh, Java and the Straits in a book called The Seeker Reisiger, which is a, a Dutch name because he was traveling in a Dutch colony. Uh, the title means uh, an invalid traveler, so you know, he was on, on sick leave, basically. So he also, in his introduction to the book, he says that he decided to write the book because at the moment, there, at the time, there was no um, guidebook available for travelers who might be interested in this region or in this part of Southeast Asia. Uh, and there's a kind of a gap in the market that he wants to fill. And you can kind of see how that then works, because the travel... Um, route that he describes through Java in particular is one that many British travelers afterwards follow pretty faithfully. And of course, it isn't solely due to the fact that many of these travelers will have read Kinloch's work. Uh, it's also to do with infrastructure, it's also to do with pre-existing Dutch uh, travel habits. But it is, in my opinion, um, this work by Charles Kinloch who, that makes that particular travel itinerary um, a kind of a model for future British travelers on the island. So places that he goes to uh, in terms of the environment, he goes to see, for example, the waterfalls near Bandung. Uh, and this becomes a place that almost every uh, British visitor to Java then uh, visits also after him. 
he goes also near Bandung, he goes to see a particular coffee plantation, um, which also kind of then becomes a place that is almost like an item on a checklist that, you know, if you go to um, Central Java, then you just have to see this. So there is this way of kind of reinforcing uh, itineraries or routes, um, and it happens often in a very short period of time. In about 10 years, um, someone publishes a book and then suddenly uh, dozens of other travelers have gone to the same places and written about the same places. Now, you also asked if, if these travelogues allow us to see how um, the empire's relationship with or use of the natural environment develops over this period of time. Uh, and this is absolutely the case as well. So to take an example from Ceylon, um, Samuel White Baker, uh, who was a kind of a famous hunter, he, he wrote kind of hunting um, hunting accounts uh, and kind of a general adventurer. But from Ceylon in particular, Ceylon was, Ceylon was important for sort of hunting tourism. Samuel Baker in his book, uh, Eight Years in Ceylon, uh, Eight Years Wanderings in Ceylon, uh, describes the transformation of the natural environment over the decades that he's known the place. So he says, uh, for example, he says, vast forests in which I formerly hunted elk and boar have now entirely disappeared. And he's talking about how this land is being claimed for agricultural, for coffee, coffee plantations and that. So I think hunting accounts in particular are a good example of where you, if you follow um, accounts from the same place over a few decades, you can see how the natural environment uh, is completely transformed, both by, <clears throat> by, the, by agriculture, by the plantation economy, but also by things like um, um, overhunting. Of course, some, some species become scarce over the 19th century and become extinct. Uh, a tiger on Java, for example, becomes extinct, becomes extinct in the 20th century. Uh, the tiger disappears from Singapore in the, the early 20th century. Um, and this is something that you can kind of trace in hunters' accounts because that's the sort of thing they're interested in. Um, yeah, I hope that answered most of your question at least. Um, thank you, Dr. Tyvonen. Um, I'm going to ask you a few more questions uh, building up on our discussion so far. and. Let me just uh, go on with the first one. Let me just fire the fire away the first one. You mentioned that certain climates were described in a hierarchical order in terms of their ability to restore one's health. And this sort of is related to a developing sector of health tourism. And in this case, I was just wondering, you know, there's this whole idea of high altitude places in South Asia that uh, that should be uh, the place for a sickly man or an ill person to have his health back. I mean, we always hear of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir, who's traveling to the Valley of Kashmir. Then you have these British officials in the 18th century and more so in the 19th century when they moved to hill stations uh, during the summer. But you also mentioned about development of specific places. For instance, uh, Kandy and Nuwara Ilya in Ceylon, and also. Mm, in Java, Baitenzorg, Ungarang, and Malang, all of these places. But what I wonder is, how did a specific colonial policy develop these places or sort of publicize these places as uh, 
places where you could restore your health or you could uh, recover from an illness. Uh, was were there any specific measures to do that? One of these, of course, you mentioned that this was facilitated by the development of steamship travel, which allowed Singapore to emerge as a destination. But I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about how these were publicized. I mean, initially how these were formulated in colonial policies and how these were publicized. Um, yeah, thank you. So that, that's, again, a very good question. I'd just like to maybe shift the focus a little bit. You asked about you asked about how the colonial governments uh, promoted these uh, these sites as as health resorts. Um, I would perhaps argue that rather than the colonial governments in this kind of, in this in this early period of of colonial tourism, it's not so much it's not so much driven by the government. It's more driven by um, individuals, by popular culture. And uh, by, by sort of interpersonal connections, informal connections, rather than kind of big state-backed initiatives. Um, and so the period is quite important here. So the kind of tourism that I'm interested in uh, in the 19th century, I call it proto-tourism in my research quite often, uh, because it's quite different from our idea of modern sort of 20th century tourism. Uh, but it's also important to point that point out that in the 19th century, people were talking about tourism. This is what people meant by tourism. Uh, so, so the meaning of the, the word changes. The kind of um, full-fledged mature tourism um, that is also backed by government initiatives uh, kind of takes off from the end of the 19th century, from the 1890s, at least in the Dutch East Indies, uh, and kind of becomes more established as a full industry in the, in the early 20th century. Uh, but in this kind of proto-tourist stage that I'm interested in, it's really um, individual um, enterprise that kind of drives, for example, this resort uh, industry. So, for example, in Nuara Elia, you can kind of trace there are these sort of several attempts to establish uh, Nuara Elia as a resort for Europeans. Um, many of them fail, most of them fail, in fact. And it's often kind of tied in with predictions about how much colonial settlement is there going to be in the next 10 years or in the next 20 years. So there is quite a lively debate around the middle of the 19th century about should we encourage uh, settlers moving into Ceylon or not? And it's kind of tied in with the coffee economy. And it's, it's very, it's a, one of, a good example of how tourism is kind of tied into a lot of uh, sort of bigger themes in colonial politics as well. But so it is often individuals or smaller groups, uh, social groups that drive these projects to make some place a resort, for example, and then often they fail or sometimes they get backing from the state and sometimes they do not. Um, it's also important to know that sometimes uh, it is local rulers like the Sultan of Johor, for example, uh, is known to have at least tried to promote Johor as a, as a kind of a health resort for Singapore-based officials and maybe also officials based in India. So um, there's quite a wide variety of actors involved in these schemes, but they are primarily not sort of centrally backed from the government. And sometimes when they are, so for example, on, on Java, the Dutch government does set up resorts 
but they are primarily intended for internal use by colonial officials within the colony. So this kind of development of these sites for transcolonial travel and eventually global travel um, happens precisely through travel writers who write, write about these places very enthusiastically uh, and kind of give advice for other would-be travelers who, when they, who can then follow them, like I mentioned with the example of Kinloch. Um, there's also, I think, important to make a distinction between kind of two different spheres within which this sort of prom promotion happens. So it happens both regionally in, uh, in Southeast Asia, around the Bay of Bengal, uh, in India, through colonial periodicals. Um, for Southeast Asia in particular, there's the Journal of the Indian Archipelago, which is quite important, where people often write these sort of shorter pieces about um, a short trip they made somewhere or some advice on if you're traveling to a place where you should go to a hotel, uh, you know, which volcano should you climb, uh, what sort of equipment should you have if you, if you want to go hiking in the mountains. So there is this kind of local press uh, which is quite important for spreading the word. Um, much of it is unfortunately now very difficult to trace because copies have just kind of disappeared um, for the kind of more short-lived journals. But then apart from that regional market, there's also, of course, these uh, major book form travelogues that I'm also interested in that were quite often published in Europe. And these then take on more the uh, take on more a kind of a, a role as promoting specific colonies as sites of settlement and also for travel. So for Ceylon, which I've mentioned a few times already, uh, a lot of the travel books about Ceylon are very explicitly promoting um, kind of young British men that they should, two young British men that they should move to Ceylon and start a plantation because that's, you know, that's where the future is. Um, also on a kind of a more sort of aesthetic cultural level, for example, you have a lot of Scottish uh, military officials on Ceylon. They often write about Ceylon. They say, oh, this, remind, this reminds me of the Scottish Highlands, the Ceylon Highlands. So they kind of create this um, reference frame based on European examples or European kind of models uh, that is then promoting these colonial destinations Thank you for your answer, Dr. Tuivenen. Uh, might I now just ask you a question about a point that you raised briefly, uh, adventure tourism or tourism that's centered around volcanoes, uh, scaling of mountains in the colonies. You argue that mm, the colonial travelogues, which spoke about visiting volcanoes or mountains, sort of, you know, give this idea of a primal fear associated with such places or uh, they, po they portray uh, an exotic kind of uh, uh, picture of these places. But you have uh, spoken quite interestingly about Mount Bromo in Eastern Java. And Mount Bromo, as we both know, it was an active volcano in the 19th century. It erupted quite a number of times. And this is a volcano that has been described by anthropologists as a human volcano system where people live very close to the mountain and their social religious life is associated with a with an annual festival uh, dedicated to the mountain and worshiping the mountain uh, mountain god but i also know from my own readings about uh, the bromo that 
um, the mountain bromo, it caused quite a number of serious environmental crises in the 19th century. Like it destroyed uh, its eruptions, uh, destroyed crops. Its eruptions were associated with viral fevers that affected the entire uh, surrounding region. And such eruptions would also uh, often force uh, volcanic mountain communities to shift to alternative uh, sources of occupation. But what I wonder is uh, when colonial travelogues encounter such volcanoes that have both this ability to uh, sort of support a local economic system and yet destroy it from time to time, uh, do descriptions of uh, descriptions of such volcanoes in colonial uh, travelogues uh, somewhat tell us about both the colonial understanding and the colonial inspired popular understanding of such spaces? Yeah, thank you. Um, that's, that's a very good question. Um, I think the first point to make is that the sort of travel accounts that I researched, uh, sort of popular travel writing, um, in this sort of writing, you don't really find any sort of deeper engagement with the local uh, conditions or with the local human environment relations in particular, uh, because travelers, by definition, they only stay in a place for a very short time. So they, they capture a, a kind of a snapshot uh, rather than an understanding of any longer term developments. And this is particularly true of uh, sort of touristic travel writers who write basically primarily for entertainment rather than someone like Franz Junghoon, who's a, as a kind of a scientist, uh, a geologist, really wants to understand the place in, in some sort of scientific sense, at least, and to get as much detail as he can out of it. So, so there is this kind of superficiality to travel accounts. Now, Mount Bromo is particularly interesting um, because it was also it was an active volcano, but it was also a kind of an important cultural site. And it's a site of uh, a kind of a major Hindu festival um, was at the time, uh, still is, I believe. Um, and one travel writer in particular who, who traveled there in the 19th century in the 1860s, I think William Barrington Dalmeida, um, his travel book, um, Life in Java is called, records two separate visits to Mount Bromo on two separate days. Um, and the first of these is very much um, a kind of a classic volcano account uh, that is inspired by European um, volcano tourism uh, of the 19th century. So Vesuvius in particular is a kind of a, an archetype of, of um, a volcano as a tourist site in the 19th century where a lot of Europeans go. And William Barrington Dalmeda writes about his first uh, trip to Mount Bromo very much using the tropes uh, of Vesuvius tourism from Europe. And there is this kind of, there are these sort of scenes of, of him as a kind of a lonely traveler and kind of his sort of silent contemplation at the edge of the volcano as this kind of great destructive force. Um, so he's very much playing up this sort of the well-established romantic tropes uh, that derive from Europe at the time. Now his second visit to Mount Bromo on the, on the next day, I believe, he describes the festival, the Hindu festival. He describes all the kind of exotic details, to his mind, exotic details, all the kind of rituals 
Uh, he describes all the pilgrims who, who come to the place, all the colors and sounds of the celebrations. So he's very much depicting, or let's put it like this, the first, his first trip is very much depicting his personal experience of the, of the volcano. And the second trip is very much depicting um, the local experience of the volcano or the, their uh, experience of the volcano. It is kind of this sort of I and them uh, division. And I find it really interesting that he has so kind of clearly separated these two accounts into two, two different uh, episodes, two different narratives within his larger book. Uh, and it seems to suggest to me that European travelers on Java at the time, they understood that there are these different meanings that attach to the volcanoes. There are different um, cultural significances that attach to the volcanoes, different ways for people to engage with the volcano. Uh, but they couldn't quite, they didn't quite have the tools to really um, bridge that uh, boundary between different cultural interpretations. They had to kind of silo them off into separate episodes, uh, like William Barrington Dolmeda does. So that I think is a good example of how tourists, colonial travelers try to kind of make sense of these, on the one hand, colonial, on the other, on the other hand, local interpretations of these science environmental sites and the different meanings. I hope that answers the question. Thank you. I will return to a point that you make about a volcano, uh, but another one, but before I do that, I just uh, wonder about uh, the development of uh, modern modes of communication in the 19th century. You have pointed out that steamships often facilitated uh, the development of certain places as health resorts, for instance, Singapore, which you discussed uh, briefly. But you, of, you have also tried to speak about the development of telegraphic communication between the Dutch East Indies and Singapore and how uh, the establishment of the underwater sea cables uh, through the Sunda Straits would often be marred by the coastal ecologies and especially uh, this happened, as you've pointed out, with the eruption of the uh, Krakatau volcano in 1883, when the entire communication system was destroyed. Did such uh, eruptions or did such environmental anomalies change or by any means uh, sort of, you know, shift the perception of of volcanoes or such places in uh, later accounts or in later uh, colonial um, accounts of tourism? So I should, I should start by saying that my kind of main research on travelogues doesn't really extend to the very end of the 19th century or further. So um, and to some extent, I'm here on a, um, I'm, I'm kind of extemporizing a little bit, improvising a little bit. Um, but I think, you're right to kind of highlight the importance of the Krakatau eruption in 1883, which is um, an absolutely kind of a massive, a major news event, a major cultural event, both locally um, as well as globally, and especially in the Netherlands. And other people have written about this. Judith Bosnack and Rick Honings uh, in, in Leiden, for example, have written about this quite recently, about the kind of the major um, about the way that the Krakatau eruption comes to take a major uh, role in Dutch culture in the in the 1880s and 90s and so and, and later. And 
This is slightly speculative, but I would argue that what the eruption does for Dutch ideas of Javanese volcanoes is it precisely makes them distinct from the European archetype, which is represented by Vesuvius. Um, it gives them a kind of a, a separate identity because of this massive event that has happened within people's life, lifetimes, so they remember it very clearly. Um, so the Javanese volcanoes become a crocodile as a kind of an archetype of that, become a major cultural trope that can now stand independently of uh, Etna or Vesuvius or, or Icelandic volcanoes in Europe. So there is that kind of sense uh, in which um, the imagery changes. Um, and I think this also kind of coincides with what is a wider cultural development towards the end of the 19th century in Europe towards uh, Orientalism and this kind of um, exotica of, of, of tropical uh, islands in particular, which is imagery that is very much used in the promotion of tourism, early tourism um, in the late 19th century, early 20th century. So I think obviously the crocodile eruption does not uh, on its own cause that cultural shift, but it very much interacts with that wider cultural shift to create this sort of imagery with which uh, Java in particular um, comes to be sold to tourists as a, as a, as a desirable destination a possibly dangerous destination, but dangerous in a sense that make it, makes it more exciting. There's something that you can kind of uh, sell, you can make uh, pictures of it that are exciting to, to watch, uh, to view. So yeah, there is this, it does kind of change the, the language of travel, I think. Uh, that's about as much as I can say about that. Thank you. I'm going to ask you a final question before we call it a day. Do you think that um, colonial redesigning of natural environment uh, in the 19th century in Ceylon, in Singapore, in Java, and how these areas were portrayed in the colonial travel literature of the 19th century still sort of shapes some of the modern understanding of these places? Would you like to reflect on that? Well, to some extent, I'm, I'm a little bit reluctant to answer that question because, um, because I know very much the 19th century history of this tourism. And then I've been to some of these places in the 21st century. Um, but there is quite a lot that happened over the 20th century that I'm not really an expert on. Um, and I think it's very important to consider 20th century, what happens over the 20th century, because it's uh, kind of, of crucial importance for questions of agency and control, uh, especially questions of how do post-independence uh, regimes kind of take over from colonial regimes? How do they transform these sorts of uh, natural sites, travel destinations? What happens in that kind of point of inflection? So I don't want to address that question too much because there are better people who are better placed to do so than I am. But of course, it's a kind of a fairly simple observation that many of the major sites of 19th century colonial tourism remain tourist destinations today. Uh, this is notably true of the botanical gardens, which, you know, the Singapore, Singapore, <clears throat> the Singapore botanical gardens are one of the major kind of tourist sites in Singapore um, at, at the moment. Same goes for Batman's on Java. Um, 
So these are kind of big draws for global tourism uh, in the present day as well. There are also sites um, like um, on Penang Island, you have Penang Hill or the waterfalls, um, which are very much kind of packaged as places to see if you go to Malaysia. And this has, you know, been the case since the 19th century. The infrastructure that has developed around those sites is not the same infrastructure as in the 19th century, but it has very much kind of um, been built on top of older colonial infrastructure layer by layer. So there is that kind of gradual development. Um, I think an important point to make as well is that nowadays environmental, environment tourism um, and colonial tourism, oh, sorry, let me put that a different way. Nowadays, it's both the environment and the colonialism, the colonial history that are packaged as products for tourists. So, for example, if you go to the Singapore Botanical Gardens and you're enjoying the natural beauty of the place, but you're also enjoying the narrative of colonial history uh, that is being presented to you in that place. And uh, then afterwards, maybe you go to the Raffles Hotel in Singapore uh, for the night. And that's very much you're being sold this um, tourist experience of colonialism as heritage, nature as heritage. So these things are intertwined. I think that's important to keep in mind. But I think maybe the point that I kind of want to finish on is to say in terms of the natural environment and tourism, in this region. The major form of global tourism in this region now is probably kind of beach tourism um, on Bali or in Thailand, various places. That's, a, that's obviously a tourism for which the environment is of crucial importance, but it is a form of tourism that does not really have a 19th century precedent. Um, this is very much a 20th century invention. So the product that you're being sold now, if you go to Thailand on a beach holiday, is of a much more recent uh, creation than the kinds of tourism that I'm looking at in my research. But of course, the industry, the beach industry, the whatever you call it, it's very much built on global economic relations, uh, Western cultural models that are rooted in colonialism, in kind of colonial. Uh, period discourses and the kind of the underpinning um, idea of exploiting nature for leisure uh, does, in my opinion, derive from the same sort of colonial extractive mindset that is also apparent in the sources that I've looked at in the 19th century. So I'm not an expert on, on beaches, either as a researcher or as an as a individual in my personal life, but I think they do reflect the same colonial history that I'm that I've been looking at in the 19th century. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Tyvonen. Uh, it was a wonderful podcast. I hope um, our our listeners have learned a lot today. Uh, our podcasts have usually looked at how we can read colonial archives uh, to understand histories of climatic anomalies or uh, developmental policies of urban and urban areas of GIS. But we have also looked at medicinal uh, development of medicinal knowledge uh, in the colonial period. Uh, but 
probably the first time, this is the first time that we listen to somebody speaking about how colonial tourism can also help us understand human environment interaction in the 19th century. Uh, thank you very much uh, for this uh, wonderful talk. Uh, my name is Archishman, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. Thank you very much. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project, Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.